One of my favorite Christmas memories actually happened in July, a very hot day in July. I was traveling through Newton, Illinois, and I decided to stop for lunch at the Dairy Queen there in Newton. And as I'm standing there on this hot day in July, there's a man in front of me, and he is an older, slightly overweight, white-haired gentleman with a long white beard. And then over here to my side is a lady with her young son. I'm going to guess he was maybe seven or eight years old, just right at that age where they start developing some attitude, you know? And he, he had a lot of attitude. And the lady apparently knew the gentleman in front of me because they had struck up a conversation. And after a while, she took her son by the arm and she said, you see that over there? She said, that's Santa Claus. You'd better be good. Well, the little boy with the attitude, he crossed his arms and he looked away and he said, that's not Santa. And she said, no, that's, that's Santa. And, and the old man bent down and waved at him. And that little kid, he actually kicked. He, he kicked right towards Santa Claus. And I couldn't believe a kid would do that, you know. And I, all I wanted to get was my burger and my fries and go sit down and eat. I wanted to just, just leave the whole situation alone. I think it must be hard to believe in Santa in July, when you're so far away from the holiday, when you're so far away from Christmas, you're so far away from the season and, and, and all of the weather. I think it's hard to believe in Santa when you're that far away from the presents and the songs. You know, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. That's creepy enough at Christmas, but it's ten times creepier when, when you hear that in, in, in July. Oh. It's hard to believe in Santa when he's so far away from your expectations. The truth is, it's hard to believe in anyone when they're so far away from your expectations, when they don't live up to who you thought they would be. What do you do when the person you believed in does something you never believed possible? Beyond disappointment, beyond just being let down, what do you do when that person you believed in humiliates you? When their actions affect your character? Now, hopefully most of us will never be in that kind of a position. And, but even if we're not, I, I think we maybe know somebody who has been in that kind of position. How do you handle that kind of pain and disappointment in a godly and gracious way? Where do you find healing when all you feel is hurt? Now, those may not be the topics that you think about when it comes to Christmas, but it's here in the Christmas story. And I want to suggest to you that's where we meet Joseph in the Christmas story. Not at a point of divine visitation like Mary when the angel appears to her, but we meet Joseph at a point of deep and humiliating disappointment. We're calling this series as we approach Christmas, we're calling it Wake Up, Waking Up to, to God's Presence Joseph is an example of someone who woke up to the presence of God. But who was he before the Christmas story? Who was he before the birth of Jesus? Who was he before that night in Bethlehem? What kind of man was Joseph before the announcement from the angel? We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1 today, verses 18 through 25. If you want to grab one of those Bibles in the 
pew in front of you. It's page 807, page 807 in Matthew chapter 1. When we're introduced to Joseph, we kind of hit the ground running with this guy. Uh, We meet him and he's dreaming. But here, even here, we're told what he was like before the birth of Jesus. Now, Now we're used to thinking about Mary, and we think of Mary as blessed among women. We think there must have been something special about Mary, and, and there definitely was something special about her. But surely there was something special about Joseph as well, as, as he was chosen just as Mary was. What can we know about Joseph? We get a few clues from just these few short verses. Look at verses 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I think there's a few things we may need to explain here because they're using words that we use but they're using them in different ways than the ways that we use them. Mary is referred to as betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph. But Joseph is called her husband. So which is it? Are they married or are they not married? And the answer is yes. (laughs) They are married and they are not married. They are betrothed married, but they're not married married yet. There was a commitment there between the two of them. That commitment had not yet been consummated. We might think of it as an engagement, but it's more than just an engagement. A contract has already been signed. Okay, A relationship has already begun. Breaking this commitment now would require more than just breaking off an engagement, more than just breaking up as a couple. It would require a written note of divorce to end this relationship. Verse 19 says, Joseph, being a just man. Some of your Bibles might say being a righteous man. You need to understand that that is a very specific, it's almost a technical term, a just man. This is not just Matthew saying, Joseph was a good guy. He was a good man. This is a very specific and technical term. Certain requirements had to be met in order for you to be thought of by your community as a just man. You had to know the law. You had to have an uncompromising obedience to the law. That means you didn't eat unclean food and you didn't hang out with unclean people. You kept the law. You kept your carpentry shop closed on the Sabbath. You would not have Joseph would not have worked on the Sabbath. Being a just man was his identity. Everyone in his community knew that Joseph was a just man, a righteous man. So how does a just man handle this girl that he is betrothed to, and yet she has been found to be with child? Well, a just man keeps the law. What does the law say? The law said, you stone her. The Romans wouldn't allow that anymore, though. The Romans didn't allow stoning. In the old days, you would have taken her to the wall. You would have announced her sin, publicly proclaimed her sin, and she would have been stoned to death. The Romans did not allow that anymore. So what does a just man do now? You get a written notice of divorce, and you take her to that same town wall where generations earlier, they would have stoned her, and you publicly proclaim her sins for everyone to hear. 
you tell exactly what she did and you throw that written notice of divorce at her. And every father walking by would turn his little girl towards her and point and say, you see that? That's what happens when good girls do bad things. The point was to humiliate her, to set her as an example, to make sure that everyone knew what sin was and what you don't do. Joseph was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a law-keeping man. But he chose not to keep the law. Unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. And what Joseph shows us in that is that doing the right thing isn't always the same as doing the good thing. Doing the the right thing is not always the same as doing the good thing. Verse 19, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. What you need to hear about that statement is it's a contradiction. A just man would put her to shame. That's what a just man would do. He would do what the law required. But Joseph chose to do the good thing rather than the right thing. And in that moment, Joseph stopped being a law-abiding Jew and he became a grace-abiding man. You read on in the text, verse 20, but as he considered these things, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There's that message again. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. What did Joseph have to be afraid of? He had to fear for his reputation. He had to fear for his character. He had to fear for who he had established himself to be. And God says, do not fear to do the good thing. Do not fear to believe in her, for that which is conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit. She will not disappoint you. She will not humiliate you. Do not be afraid to take her as your own. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God paints a picture of Ezekiel, or God paints a picture of Israel. And it's not a, not a pretty picture at all. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, God says, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origins and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. By the way, none of that's a compliment. <laughs> All of that's saying you are a failure. You are miserable. You are a disappointment. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you or rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in an open field, for you were abhorred on that day when you were born. And when I passed by, I saw you wallowing in your blood, 
and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live, and I made you flourish like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. God says, you were a mess. You were a mess, and I took you in, and I nursed you to health, and I made you beautiful, and yet the picture that he paints is still not a pretty picture because Israel rejects God as father. Israel goes out and prostitutes itself to other gods and to other countries and continues to reject and fail and disappoint God over and over again. How do you believe in someone who has given you no reason to believe in them? You know, what does God do? At the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 16, God reminds them of his covenant. And he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. I love that promise. God is going to do something that will confound them. He still does things that confound us, doesn't he? Instead of rejecting them, he gives himself. Instead of casting them away or stoning them, he gives them his son. That's why Joseph is told, don't be afraid to do the good thing instead of the right thing. Because that is exactly what God did for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the anticipation of Christmas isn't really about Jesus' birth. It's about His mission. Why He came. It's, it's about mercy. It's about doing the good thing even when it's not the right thing, how even when we are a mess, God believes in us. And the lesson for us is that believing in someone else can change the course of their life. Not only that, but it, it changes the course of your heart. Which would you rather be known for? Doing the right thing or doing the good thing? The message of Christmas is that God believes in you. So what do we give back to Him? John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. He adopted us. He calls us His own. And He gives us a new name. Children of God. The text here in Matthew 1 continues in verse 21. She will, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The angel says very specifically in verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus. You see, that's what a father does. A father names his son. 
A father gives the son his identity. And in that culture, your name was your identity. Your name was your mission. It was what you would become known for. And there's something personal there for Joseph. And then later in verse 25, it says, and he called his name Jesus. I've told you before, the name Jesus in the New Testament is the same as the name Joshua in the Old Testament. The name means Jehovah saves. It's a declaration of, of God's power to save us, to, to overcome whatever it is that we're facing. Names meant something in that culture. Uh, to give someone a name was to give them strength, was to give them power. It meant that you set the course of their lives, of who they would be and what they would do. There's a woman named Anja Lovin. And Anja Lovin is from, uh, she, she's Dutch, and she is a care worker in Nigeria. She goes to the poorest of the poor in that country, and she brings food, she brings water, she brings medicine, and she brings hope. Angela Lovin was in Nigeria one day working among the poorest of the poor, and she saw a little boy walking towards her. He was two years old, and his family had rejected him. His family believed that he was a witch. And in that culture, when someone says that you're a witch, you are sent away, and no one takes care of you. Eight months earlier... For eight months, that two-year-old boy had been on the streets, fending for himself, eating scraps, doing anything he could to survive. He was a walking skeleton. He was riddled with disease and riddled with worms. And Angela Lovin fed him. She, she gave him water. She cleaned him up. She treated him for his illness and his worms. And she took him in, and she eventually adopted him, and she gave him the name Hope to give him the strength to recover and survive. What you see in Angela Lovin and her son Hope is what you saw in Ezekiel 16 between God and Israel, and it's what you see in Joseph and his wife, Mary, and their son, Jesus. The power of believing in someone else, despite the evidence, despite your disappointment, despite your own humiliation, that is powerful, especially when someone else can't believe in themselves. Hope could not have believed in himself. He could barely survive. He was eaten up. He was dying Anja's belief in him changed that, and now he thrives, just like God's belief in us, just like Joseph's belief in his wife Mary and his new son. Believing in someone else can change the course of their life. So I was sitting there at Dairy Queen on that hot day in July down in Newton, and I was eating my burgers and fries, my burger and fries. Only one. It may have been a double. And, and a thought occurred to me that I want to share with you because I think this is profound. If you see an older man who is slightly overweight and he has white hair and a long white beard, 
he already knows he looks like Santa Claus. <laughs> and there's a good chance he did that on purpose. I sat there and I ate my food. The old man was here in front of me and the wife or the, the, the mother and the son were, were over here. And I got up and I took my tray up and I threw my trash away. And then I walked back up to the old man and I said, excuse me, uh, Santa Claus? And he said, yes. <laughs> I said, I don't know if you remember me, but my name's Brett. I'm from Kansas, Illinois. And he said, Brett, how have you been? I said, I'm doing okay. I said, do you remember when I was eight, you brought me a wagon? He said, it was a red one, wasn't it? I said, yes, it was. He said, how did that work out for you? I said, I still use it every day. It's the best. He said, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And I said, Santa, I, I, know, it's, I know it's July. I am trying really hard. But I'm afraid I'm messing up every now and then. I, I'm trying really hard to be good. And I don't know how things are going to go this year. And, and he said, Brett, don't you worry about it. I, I think you're going to do okay. I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, you, you're going to do fine. Oh. And I looked over at the little boy. His eyes were wide open. <laughs> and I looked at his mother, and she was grinning. And I looked back over at Santa Claus. He was beaming with pride. And I looked at the little boy, and I went, Whew. And I walked out. There's someone in your life who desperately needs you to believe in them. Because they've lost the ability to believe in themselves. So my question is, who will you believe in this week? Despite the evidence, despite history, despite the fact that common sense tells you you're just going to get let down again. Who will you believe in this week? Let's stand and pray. Fathers, as we approach Christmas, we have to admit that far too often it's, it's not Santa that we have trouble believing in. It's other people. We've been hurt. We've been let down. We've been humiliated. We've gone from forgiveness to defense mode way too quick and way too often. But when we think about this holiday, we realize it, it means that we're confronted with new possibilities and, and new hope. We're confronted with the God who came near, who despite rejection and even death, chose to come to love, to offer forgiveness and healing, ultimately to, to offer yourself. You believed in us when we were powerless to believe in anyone, especially ourselves. So help us to carry that attitude as we approach Christmas and in doing so, we will carry Jesus to people who desperately need to believe in him. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.